All right, everyone. Welcome to Magnifying God. I'm your host, Adam Michael, and we've been on quite a journey last month, and we're dissecting this book, Prepare to Overcome. Now, we knocked out the first section, which is actually a workbook called Preparing the Saints. It's an amazing workbook, and it walks through the baptism, the Holy Spirit, our words, spiritual warfare, the authority that we have in Christ. And if you're really interested, I can't recommend going back to previous podcasts and checking those out because they really lay a great foundation with what we're learning right now. And what we're learning right now is section two of Prepare to Overcome, which is called the Royal Priesthood. The Royal Priesthood. Now, in this Royal Priesthood, uh, chapter 12, we talked about the priest of God, the responsibility of the priests of God, and how we've been called to this responsibility. Then we move on to the oracle of God, the throne of God, and the garden of God. What the oracle of God actually is and how we need to be in that oracle so that we're able to then hear the voice of the Lord, the Rima word of the Lord, and we're able to fulfill his will on earth as it is in heaven. Then we moved on to the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. And we started understanding who the bride is, the qualifications of the bride, and how this is going to play a role into the times that we're going into right now. Now, with that being said, you know, what the Lord has really put on my heart is understanding this idea of the spiritual reality that Jesus was living in versus the physical reality, which is what we see in the physical realm. And we start with, first off, John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. It's with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is discussing with Jesus this whole idea of born again. And he was looking at it from a physical standpoint. And Jesus was trying to tell him, and this was a rabbi, this this guy knows scripture. So he was trying to explain to him a spiritual reality. And Nicodemus didn't understand it because he himself needed to be born again spiritually. So that's always the first step in every process when you're dealing with the Christian faith. You need to be born of the Spirit, of water and the Spirit. So then we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 to 9. It talks about how Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's like, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as infants in Christ. And he couldn't even talk about spiritual things with these people because they were still earthly bound. They were still tied up in this physical realm, this worldliness. And they were, there was dissension going on. There was jealousy going on. All of these things are not what Jesus has called us to. Jesus, it was a spiritual reality with Jesus. So he would take things in the physical and try to explain spiritual things. For instance, the kingdom of God and how he would go through explaining the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom, and he was explaining it through physical things. So it's very interesting when we get to this part. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. This temple. And people were like, oh, the temple. Oh, that means, you know, the temple, temple, this physical temple. Well, actually, that's the wrong Greek word. The temple that he was talking about was the very 
how the housing, the housing of God. The, the physical temple in the Greek deals with sanctuary. So you start seeing this everywhere. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That temple is the same word as what Jesus was saying, destroy this temple. You can supplement body there. Destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. And behold, the the curtain of the body was torn in two from top to bottom. And we're like, well, wait, wait. I think that's taking it too far. But if you go into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 22, if you get to verse 20, it says, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. The curtain was torn in two. That was his flesh that was torn. You go back to Matthew 27, verses 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the body was torn in two. That curtain was the flesh of Jesus. He was talking on a different level, a spiritual level. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That is the same word, temple, as the one in John chapter 2, Matthew 27. And you think to yourself, hmm, that's interesting. Now let's supplement body there. Do you not know that you are God's body and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you start seeing how this is getting unpacked here, that he's talking about spiritual things here. And that we need to realize that if we're born of spirit, we need to be functioning out of that spirit. And the last thing I will say to you is this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is talking about the desolation of the temple. The temple that you see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, is the same temple that God uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Matthew 27, verse 51, John chapter 2, verse 19. Ready? Let's repeat it and use the word body. So that he takes his seat in the body of God, proclaiming himself to be God. We think that he is coming and he's going to be set up in the temple of the Lord. That very temple is us. That very temple is us. Just think about that for just a moment. If this, if you just take the Greek word, and you realize that he's talking about the body of Christ. Remember, the very presence of God does not live in the temple, physical temple, it lives in us. 
In 2 Thessalonians, it's talking about so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, where God is housed and proclaims himself to be God. What if, and I love saying the word, what if, the desolation of the temple is in us? With that being said, we're going to be talking about the Song of Solomon. Now, this is a physical picture of a spiritual truth. So, the words that have been written in this next chapter, chapter 15, of Prepare to Overcome, it's going to be dissecting what this actually looks like. And now, there are qualifications, specifically with the bride, with the royal priesthood, we walk through. And Debbie Simpson's joined us today, and she's going to be helping us see it even clearer. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation, but I cannot stress enough that we need to sit down with our Lord and our Savior, and we need to ask Him, Father, prepare us for what is to come. Prepare us spiritually, spiritually, I don't want to be an infant in Christ. I don't want to be an infant in Christ. I want to be built up in love, growing up into the head, into Jesus in every way. Because I don't want to be housing that enemy. I don't want to, I don't want to see the enemy taking the seat in my body proclaiming himself to be God. I don't want that. I don't want anything of corruption in me. I want to be walking by faith, not by sight. I want to be walking by the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. The world cannot accept the things in the Spirit because they cannot be discerned by the flesh. Even Peter says, you are the Christ. And God says, the only way that you are able to answer that is because of the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. So I just want revelation to see things from a spiritual perspective, to see things from God's perspective. That includes the Holy Bible. Because this was written by the Holy Spirit who is spirit. The author is spirit. Therefore, I want to be seeing it with spiritual eyes, not man's eyes. And he is the only one that is going to unpack that. So with that being said, we've got Debbie Simpson on this line. And Debbie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Adam. How are you? Really good. Really good. Um, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Um, I know we're going to be unpacking Song of Solomon. I know we're not going to get to that uh, just yet, but I do know that you're going to be really kind of helping us see this in in a clearer sense. Um, so, by the way, just take it away. Thank you, Adam. And I want to springboard off of your introduction here, and that is what God has been revealing through the restoration and restoring of these walls. You said that... In, you use the word spiritual, you know, Jesus 
walked in a, a spiritual understanding and he kept trying to bring a spiritual understanding in everything that he was saying. That word spiritual can be also substituted supernatural. And that I think a lot of times is what will stumble believers because to walk in that supernatural place is very um, uncomfortable when you're first stepping into it or you're looking at it from, you know, from the, the beginning of the journey. And so as we have gone through this whole book with all, you know, with all these podcasts, that's what this has all been about. It's been all about looking at the scriptures, not through the physical understanding of what it is saying, but the spiritual understanding. So I appreciate, again, everything that you shared. That is the lens that all of this is being viewed through and then unpacked through. And when we begin to allow ourselves or recognize and understand that this is a spiritual understanding and a spiritual view of these things, all of a sudden it's not quite so out there. It's not quite so, um, you know, off the, you know, off the charts of, you know, being able to come into um, agreement with what the scriptures are saying with regards to these things. So what I'd like to do this morning is just take a step back and let's look at the big picture. What is the message of God to his people today? Well, it's intimacy with him. This is the single most important thing. And quite honestly, it is the only thing. It is God's call to all his people. And though intimacy stands premier among all the issues that we've been bringing in through these lessons, these podcasts, there are other issues that have been associated with it, as we have seen. One of them is overcoming. In these last days, part one of the book um, talks about that when walked in, um, we believers, as we walk in, everything that was revealed in part one, we begin to overcome Satan because Satan will have been expelled from their vessel, from their domain, and from wherever their foot treads. So loss of understanding of his authority, his words, his place and position, his purpose in the kingdom of God, these are the broken down walls being restored today. And even as you were sharing with the desolation standing in the temple, see, as we begin to institute part one in and all the verses, what they are revealing, that's when we begin to expel the enemy from our vessel. That that's all that's all the same thing. Part two of the book, as we have gone into, that's where we're at now, this royal priesthood. When we come into an understanding of what God is revealing, we see then that as believers, we'll be positioned to overcome to a much greater degree. Because we are abiding in the oracle, the place of greatest proximity to God. Okay? So when we as believers walk in this place, we walk in greater privilege in the kingdom. In this place of the study, it's the holiness of God and the sanctity of his priests that are also the broken down walls being restored by God. What is found in the definition and verb tenses used in the scriptures related to the royal priesthood and the bride revealed distinctions required by God for those who would qualify for this place in the kingdom. These distinctions relate to his holiness, 
and are always in play and are non-negotiable. Part one in the preparing of the saints portion, it focused on believers. Part two, the royal priesthood, well, this focuses on God, on his holiness, and therefore his distinction from among men, God's distinction, as he has pictured for us in the temple layout and in the following words. This is these definitions of these words, they, when understood, begin to pull back the curtain of the loss of understanding that there is distinctions that have been established by God in his kingdom. These words sanctified, priesthood, holy, priest, the chosen, and faithful. Okay? What we learned um, with regards to sanctified is that that which is sanctified by divine decree must be kept separate from the profane or the common by inviolable distinction, so as to maintain a distinction between these two spheres. Okay. Included in this definition is the understanding that the priesthood is dedicated to the sphere of the sanctified. The sphere, the realm of the sanctified, is kept distinct from the profane or that which is common because it is in the sphere that God dwells. Remember, not only is the sphere of the sanctified kept separate or distinct from the sphere of the profane, it is in opposition to it. So we see here that the concept of holiness is born out of this distinction between the sphere of the sanctified and therefore holy and the sphere of the profane. It is a priestly obligation to protect the sanctity of God's holy space. When we come to understanding that our temple possibly has been profaned because the enemy has had a chance to encamp here. What's what? That's that Thessalonians verse that you referenced is talking about. The, 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 the abomination, it's, it's in God's temple. We've got to clean our vessel. What, what has got the throne in our vessel? Is it bitterness? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it lust? Is it addictions? Well, these are profaning the temple. And this is why God is talking. If you are a priest, then these things, if you're housing them, are going to profane God's space when you come into his place as a priest and king before him. And that's why these distinctions are in place. And that's what all these, these, these lessons are talking about. They are equipping us to recognize that this is the truth of the reality of where we're at today. We are the Joshua company of Zechariah chapter 3. We're filthy. I am. We all are. We, why? Well, because we have been born in the Laodicean, last days Babylonian church. And we were raised up in the filth of these broken down walls that did not teach us that we need to be intentional, to clean our vessel, that it is a spiritual war to be able to do that, that the spiritual enemy are these spirits of lust, addictions, fears, that they are desecrating the temple. And God is in his mercy revealing this in this last day so that we can go to war, kick these out of our vessel, then we kick them out of our domain. And now we are protecting the sanctified space as priests. A priest of God is one of high rank who holds greater responsibility 
and greater privilege by virtue of his position before the Lord. He receives these divine decrees and he executes kingdom business. So this carries the weighty responsibility to maintain realm distinction and sanctified sphere integrity. But we're not doing that if we're housing the enemy and the filth in our camp, in our vessel. As priests of God enter into these fears, then it is mandated that they be sanctified as well, so as not to profane the space with their presence. This allows them the physical proximity to God himself as a ministering official before him. I'm not talking about running to the Lord as a child in your time of need. That's a different level. We here are discussing those who want to come in at a much greater degree of intimacy and privilege and position. That, first off, as a world priest, and now as we get in here today, as the bride. So we see here that as noted in this definition of priest, the sphere of the sanctified is not only kept separate, but it's in opposition to the sphere that is common, that is profane, that's been dirtied and sullied. As a priest, as it, as, um, it is the priest who has been appointed by God to attend a sacred space, it's imperative that any who would call themselves a priest could only qualify by these standards. All right, so to tolerate filth in your vessel would disqualify you from the priesthood. How do you know if there's filth in the vessel? And if, it, if you know there is, but you don't know why it is, that's the point. Intimacy with God. You go to him as the child, and you say, help me, show me. And then as he begins to show you, and you partner with him to begin to clean your vessel, you grow up into the royal priesthood. So, and then as we go into also the other words that, you know, we have been talking about, keep and, um, and um, distinction, we see here that in Exodus 19.5, God chooses his priest from among those who keep his word. It said in Exodus 19.5, that if indeed you will keep my words, then you, these are the ones who become a priest unto me. These are defining factors. These are qualifying factors that God has put in his word, and we need to recognize when he's doing this. And we saw that. What does it mean to keep? It means to be careful to do. The statutes, the judgments of God. The Hebrew word shamar is foundational to covenant. Its definition includes to um, do, to observe, to keep safe, guard, attend to, to hedge about as with thorns, to preserve. If a believer is unfamiliar with the statutes and judgments of God, he'll be unable to observe them or preserve them because he cannot guard what he does not know. Yet, it's in keeping of these statutes and these judgments that God's people qualify for the priesthood. Ignorance does not exempt from the requirement. Why? Because as we stated earlier, it is the sanctity of God that is always in play and it is always non-negotiable. Our ignorance in the profanity and the filth of our vessel will, will, not, will not expiate us from the requirements of priesthood to be clean before we come into God's presence. We'll be able to come in as a child of God. And he'll dust us off and he'll, you know, and he'll wipe and kiss the boo-boo on the knee. But he's looking 
for a higher caliber, as we're going to begin to see as we go through here and what we've been talking about, for those who will minister to him at the higher capacity of priest. That's what the whole definition, one of high rank. I don't say that. That is the definition of priest as God has declared it to be. Included in these commands, which God requires his people to keep, is that they maintain a distinction. That's what all this is about. That is a separation to keep separate that which is set apart or holy from that which is common. His people who are walking in this degree of privilege in the kingdom, position in the kingdom, they have got to be distinct. Inherent in this definition is the understanding that this is considered a privilege. So the covenant of separation, you shall be unto me a peculiar possession. Deuteronomy 14.2, 1 Peter 2.9 is broken. This covenant is broken. When that which is profane violates this distinction that separates the holy from the profane and compromises the integrity of God's holiness zone. As seen in the progressive revelation of 1 Deuteronomy and then 1 Peter, the priesthood comes under the constraints. The priesthood comes under the constraints of maintaining separation from the common. It is revealed in 1 Peter that it is God's intention that all the congregation qualify to be called the royal priesthood, but they must first distinguish themselves from the sin that would make them common among the congregation. Then we go also into the word chosen. This is all review, but it's so important that we understand that in these words is, is inherent definitions that point out and that focus on and that magnify that there is a distinction being made by God in his kingdom regarding his people. So we found, defined in the word chosen in Revelation 17, 14, that the chosen, it means to choose out or pick out for myself, not necessarily a rejection of those not chosen. So we see that there is the entire congregation of God, but he is going to pick out for himself from among this, this assembly. Not that he's rejecting those not chosen. It's not the focus isn't on those not chosen here. The focus is on those chosen. And we saw that the grammatical composition of the word chosen in Revelation 17 emphasized the superior quality of that singled out as being above common usage or understanding. It meant that this was the choice, the best, the foremost of its class or kind. It was in the anarthrous verb tense. So we saw that some of the called were not chosen to be the bride in this case, the wedding guests who refused the invitation, the bridesmaids who were first found sleeping. So some of the called were not the choice, the select, the best of their class or kind. They were not preeminent as applied to certain individual Christians. That is the theological word book, or um, excuse me, this is New Testament, Thayer's, that would have been the Thayer's definition, inherent in the word chosen. It said, some called, this is not Debbie talking, this was the biblical dictionary saying that some called are not the choice, the select, the best of its class or kind. They were not, as those in this word chosen, 
the preeminent as applied to certain individual Christians, end of definition. So then we studied the word faithful. Remember, faithful. the faithful were noted in Revelation 17 as distinguished more by that verb tense. They were the ones noted in the passive voice. They were being acted upon, meaning that these things were being done to them. What thing? What was thing was being done to these faithful followers? What was being done to them? They were the ones in whom faith or trust reposes, the one in whom Christ can trust, those in whom he can rely upon. And as we go into the Song of Solomon, we're going to see the word ravished. She has ravished my heart. When we look at the definition, we're going to find that ravish means that, that, that she's been given access to the deeper reaches of her beloved's heart. And the reason why was because she could be trusted in. When I go into my prayer, I'll say, Lord, make my heart a heart in which you can trust. Make my heart a place where you can come in and you can rest. That I am careful with the deeper reaches of your heart that I'm careful with it and that I don't allow anything in my life or in my vessel that would threaten your sanctity, your holiness, your nature in any way so that I can be trusted by you to be careful with the deeper reaches of your heart, Lord. And that's what we're seeing in the Song of Solomon. That is the kind of person that is going to be the bride. I'm not saying I am the bride. <laughs> I'm saying I'm trying to grow up into this, and this is how I'm doing it. I'm finding out what are the qualifications, and then I'm going to the Lord. I'm saying, this isn't me. Please help me to become this. And that's the reason why God's revealing this in this last day. He wants us all to come to this place and to recognize that we're not there, that we need to be there, and that the only way that we can get into the oracle of God into, as a position of priest and bride and king is we first come on our knees as a child running to God and saying, I'm coming into the oracle, show me what am I needing to do? And he shows, and then we work together with the Lord, with the Spirit, in a supernatural endeavor. And then we grow up, and then we can return in time, in maturity, as the royal priesthood and as the bride, because we have cleaned out the vessel. As believers who wish to be these things, the bride, the royal priesthood, then it is necessary not only to know what these words mean, but then it is also necessary to do what these words mean. As has been discussed in part one, this is a supernatural endeavor. Let's exchange that out, okay? Let's throw it out. This, this is spiritual, okay? It requires that one be spiritually minded. He needs to be a spiritually minded man. Why? Because this cannot be done in the strength of the flesh, nor in the understanding born of the carnal mind, because it is the absence of the flesh. It is the absence of carnal mindedness that is the distinction. It's the absence of the carnal-mindedness, the absence of operating in the flesh that creates the distinction, that maintains the distinction in the life of the believer. The distinctive qualities of a priest 
are reflected in all aspects as presented in the qualifications of a priest, and they're all pictured in the aspects of the cherubim. Remember, the believer with no flat nose, he's able to maintain a distinction between truth and error by virtue of discernment. Or, no flat nose, he has the ability to discern the spirit, which is why he's able to prevent the wrong spirit from entering the sacred space of God. He can discern that in his, in his vessel, he's carrying a spirit of pride. That's filthy before the Lord. So he wants to be a priest of God. He expels that from his vessel, and he expels it from his life, therefore protecting the sacred space of God that he chooses and desires to enter into. He's got a discerning spirit. He has no flat nose. He qualifies for priesthood. Another distinction, if found in a believer, that would set him apart would be the priestly um the, the priestly requirement of nothing superfluous. This believer would be set apart if he's not adding to or annulling the instruction of God. Also, perhaps, and in, in, and in conjunction with, they have stripped themselves of the flesh, superfluous, and carnal-mindedness, superfluous, extra, the adding on. A believer walking in distinction would exhibit all the character traits portrayed in the faces of the cherubim. Okay, human compassion and understanding in intercession, even as the face of a man, a burden bearer who allows himself to come under the divine restraint, the yoke of the Lord as the ox, one who would take dominion and knows warfare as a lion, and also one who operates from the heavenly perspective of earthly things and does not engage in the lower realms, even as the eagle. See, these are all things that we've talked about, that when you begin to institute these in your lives through the spirit of the supernatural endeavor, going to the Lord, asking Jesus, help me, asking the Holy Spirit, help me, show me when this stuff is in play. And it is a supernatural revelation of these things and then in Christ and the Spirit, it's a supernatural endeavor to get rid of these things. That's why can, nothing carnal can be a part of this process. Carnal will shut it down. It'll sabotage it. It can't be done. What has been revealed through the scriptures is God's estimation of the gravity of the import of man's purity before him. This is a portion of the missing foundation that God is rebuilding through his word. And until we as believers understand this, we'll be unable to recognize when the scriptures are pointing out the standards that will make a separation among his people. The relevance of purity, and I mean purity as defined by God, is a prominent recurrent theme from Genesis to Revelation. When we begin to recognize that when God employs identifying factors, and these factors define places or positions in the kingdom, then and only then will we begin to realize we need to qualify for a title or a position we presume to have. Even as the people of Matthew 7:23, who presumed to have a place in the kingdom and did not, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Be gone from me. I never knew you. We see from this verse that it is quite possible to devise and live by a standard of our own making 
and then find out too late that it is only God's standard that will matter in the end. We would do well to seek out and receive when it is revealed God's standards of distinction. The significance of what is being revealed in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, will only be recognized when viewed through this lens. The description of the bride will reveal her character, her behavior, and a heart that is extraordinary, that is preeminent, that is superior among men. She is distinct, and for this reason, she meets the qualities that are defined in help, meet, suitable. The bride that God himself designed. She is a help. Keep in mind that the definition includes both material and divine aid. We saw that the Holy Spirit is defined as the helper. This is key. All believers have been equipped with the Holy Spirit in them, as well as having been made partakers of the divine nature. The bride is distinctive as she is operating under the full influence of the Spirit of God and is therefore a helper to Jesus, as we saw in Revelation 17, 14. Christ overcomes because those who are with him, they are his helpers. We cannot help Jesus if we are operating in any manner carnal. That's what put him on the cross. She is meat. She matches. She agrees almost exactly. Or she is of close similarity to her bridegroom. And finally, the bride is suitable. That is, she is of like kind as the bridegroom. That is, she is of like kind as the patterned son. So as we go into this, we want to look into the Song of Solomon and see its description. Interestingly enough, what is discovered is that in the meeting of the conditions required for the bride, the believer by default also meets the qualifications of the priest. The, she would also, or he would, the believer, would meet the conditions for the priesthood. And the believer would exhibit the character traits of the royal priest as the believer then would be operating as both king that fulfills the royal. Think of royal priesthood. Think of kingly priesthood. And then also she'd be fulfilling the, the priestly requirements. So to finish up, I'd like to go ahead and just touch on a few of the examples from the Song of Solomon and how these descriptions translate into distinctions. All right, so let's, you know, for instance, let's go to Song of Solomon, chapter 4, um, verse 4. And it says, your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory, whereupon there hang a thousand bucklers, all round shields of the mighty men. Keep in mind that the Old Testament is picturing spiritual truths. So we go through here and we see, let's look at our definitions. And as we, we're going to look at these definitions and we're going to see then what are they communicating? The neck is a symbol of strength. 
strength by definition to be bound or firmly attached to, in this case, Christ. The neck can be symbolic of subjection, the, the yoke upon your neck, or it can be symbolic of superiority, the foot upon the neck. Here we're seeing it as a symbol of superiority. Her neck is a strong tower. A Hebrew word, the Hebrew word indicating the superlative. Tower doesn't really mean a big, tall building. Tower means to make whatever word you're talking about stronger. That means that's the superlative. So the word here is a strong tower. Tower means to make the strength stronger, to strengthen the strength of the neck. It pictures the heights. The Lord is a high tower. And it speaks of strength and deliverance. All the scripture references are in the, in, the, in the text. Okay? The tower is a place where a watchman would sit. Those who are awake, vigilant, and know the signs of the times. They would not be sleeping like a bride, but like the virgin. They're not sleeping. In addition, it calls to mind Habakkuk upon his watchtower, waiting on the Lord to hear what he would say, to speak as an oracle of God. The armory depicts weaponry. Here, it's an indication that her weapons are not carnal, but divinely powerful. As we see pictured in the Old Testament as a physical picture of what is for the New Testament a spiritual truth. And we also see that around the bride hang bucklers and shields. Here's your definition. That which protects as a shield. This is your definition. In this case, the suzerain of covenant. The shield that surrounds her is not a metal or bronze piece of equipment. The suzerain of covenant is the shield. The shield, get this, is God himself. A type of Christ. Okay. The followers, um, we see here the might, okay, type of Christ. So the shield is without human intervention. This is why the flesh cannot be used. The shield of God himself, the shield is God himself, divine protection. The mighty men in this scripture are distinguished from among David, who is a type of Christ. These are followers who through loyal devotion and self-sacrifice ascribe to the 30, then attain to the three. These were the lowly, the outcasts, the rejects, rejects of society, spurned from among the congregation, who nevertheless recognize the hand of God and the anointing of the Spirit of God. This is the bride. She's willing to be numbered among the lowly, the outcasts, and the rejects of her congregation, of her assembly. She's willing to be spurned from among the congregation because she recognized the hand of God. She recognizes the anointing of the Spirit. And by virtue of this, she gives up herself to serve and minister to her king even as the mighty men of David. They were loyal, faithful, tenacious, focused, committed, unwavering, and untemptable. This is the bride. This is not all believers. We all know believers who cannot be counted on or trusted in, cannot be rested in, to be loyal, faithful, tenacious, focused, committed, unwavering, or untemptable. But this is the mighty men of David, and this is who the bride is likened to. They loved their king, and they followed him wherever he went. Proven trustworthy to be faithful followers. They executed the decrees of the king, and this remnant group of nobodies became the mighty men of David. 
that's the bride, she will not be looked upon initially by those around her as having anything to commend her at all. The bride's strength has been strengthened because she is bound and firmly attached to Jesus. That's her intimacy in the oracle. Her submission to his yoke has been made evident by her superiority over her enemies, and her only weaponry is divine in nature. And for these reasons, she, like the mighty men of David, has been distinguished from among the assembly. So let's look at this. Well, what are the, her royal priestly qualifications? She's got no broken hand because as the mighty men of David, she's able to wield the sword in warfare well. She's no hunchback, as is evidenced by a neck that is strong, straight, and not bent over. She pictures the cherubim. Why? Because she has entered beyond the veil. She exhibits the attributes of the ox, the symbol of strength, pictured on the veil. But she pictures this, so she's gone through the veil. She has submitted to the yoke of her master. She operates as a lion. Okay? Again, pictured on the cherubim. Because um, she portrays the bold and fearless countenance when confronted by the enemy that is pictured in the mighty men. She, just, she takes dominion by virtue of the weaponry that she avails herself, the spirit of God. She displays strength over her enemy. As the mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle the shield and spear, and whose faces were like the lion's, Faces, we see in First Chronicles 12, 8, she too has a fierce countenance before her adver adversary. She is alert, vigilant, and courageous. The bride knows warfare, which is why she's by his side in the battle of Revelation. She battles not people. She battles powers and principalities, world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. For this reason, she fulfills the kingly aspect, because kings go to war, which serves its purpose in gaining and retaining dominion for her king. As the eagle, she builds upward, as is portrayed in her description as a tower picturing the heights. She lives in the upper realms, and by reason of this, she is also a type of watchman who is able to see the upper and lower realms she perches on high and waits to hear what the Lord will speak to her. She has a heavenly aspect of earthly things, but she does not entangle herself in the earthly affairs. Rather, she uses her perception from the heights to bring the kingdom into the affairs that she sees below. Like the mighty men, she has distinguished herself from among the congregation to attain the prize of her coveted position. Having walked in the fullness of the cherubim, she has access to the oracle and can be found beyond the veil, the bride. Right? So then let's go to verse 8. Is another example. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So to journey down, this is a call of the bridegroom to his bride. This is a call to exclusivity. Will she make herself exclusive to only him? Ah, no harlotry here, only faultless faithfulness to him alone. However, we see that the call continues. Come from the luxuries of Lebanon, the summit of Amana, 
Tanir and Herman, the delightful places that depict the pleasures that the world has to offer. It is his call to come away from the world and all of its entanglements. We see this in Revelation 18, come out from her, my people, come out from Babylon. This is what is pictured here. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive her plagues. That's your Revelation verse. The bride is being beckoned out of the last days Laodicean church, ruled by men, their doctrines, and their theologies. She is being called out of her personal and cultural past, which has kept her enslaved to the old ways of life. The call is not just to beckon into fellowship with him, however. For in his wisdom, the bridegroom knows that the heights offer not only pleasures, but in truth they conceal such hidden dangers as lion's dens and the leopard's. So as one indulges in these worldly pursuits, the carnal dangers lie hidden, ready to pounce. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. We've spit these verses out, but we really understood the depth of what the call is. So even as the Laodicean church is filled with pride, extolling all of her attributes, is yet deceived, thinking she's enjoying her perceived blessings of wealth and physical well-being, Christ reveals her true position. Behold. I stand at the door and knock. Christ is on the outside of the church, bidding them let him come in. This reveals that this church has neither fellowship nor intimacy with the bridegroom. Until we as believers recognize that we are all in the Laodicean church, this isn't those poor saps over there in that other church, or those poor saps over there in that other, you know, theological belief system. The last day's church is a Laodicean church, and it was in place when we were born. We were all born into it. That's the call. And until we begin to recognize that we are the Laodicean church, we are in it, and we espouse it, and we need to get out. And until we recognize that we are the Laodicean church, we won't apply any of this to us. Jonathan and David are another example. They were in covenant, yet separated by Jonathan's unrelinquished ties to his past. This is the Laodicean church. Jonathan pictures one who stays loyal to the home in which he was raised, its culture, its traditions, its familiarity, the comfort born out of all of these things. He knew his father's house had been rejected by God due to disobedience and inferior devotion, yet he could not bring himself to leave. The result? Jonathan did not journey down. He was not found in the wilderness with his king, nor numbered among the mighty men of David, those faithful by his side. Christ is in the wilderness, bidden by Satan to cast his eyes on distant lands, tempted to be disloyal to his father by taking a shortcut to his rule, indulging the flesh and bypassing the cross. So, too, the bride is given the same opportunity to make the choice and prove her loyalty and uncompromised devotion. Okay? The true hidden danger here, loss of brideship. The royal priestly qualification, she's a virgin. Why? Because she does not play the harlot with the world system. She's been bidden to come out. She serves nothing other than God. She's holy. She sets herself apart. She remains distinct. She has quote, come out from among them, as is bidden in Revelation. She does not honor nor submit to the opinions of people when her bridegroom beckons her to come out from among them. And by this reason, 
she's free from blemish. Okay, the help meet suitable qualifications. Okay, so even as Christ was called out of Egypt, so too the bride hears the call and she comes out of the world system. For this reason, she is of like kind of him as him. Okay, um, we see in um, Hosea 11.1, 1, the call, come out of Egypt, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Babylon, the bride is being called. We see here the help meet suitable qualification that she is willing to journey down, down. This reveals her meek and humble spirit. Thus, she is of like kind as her bridegroom. Jesus says, I am meek and humble of heart. Like David's mighty men, she's willing to leave the heights. She's willing to leave a place of esteem and honor to be with her beloved in the wilderness, a place of reproach in the eyes of man. Verse 9. Thou has ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou has ravished my heart with one of thine eyes and with one chain of thy neck. This word ravished immediately connects into and is um, uh, correlating with the word faithful. To be ravished is to stir, be stirred up to full joy. It affects the totality of one's being, his will, his thoughts, his emotions. It affects the fullness of the depths of who he is. The bridegroom expresses his vulnerability to her, born out of his love for her. The bride, understanding this, handles with care the access she's been given to the deeper reaches of her lover's heart, and she uses her influence over his heart for his good always. That's why she's numbered among the faithful. She can be trusted to rest and repose in. Okay, these scriptures are confirmed in, this, in um, the, the, these truths, I'm sorry, are confirmed in such scriptures as John 2, 24 to 25, when it says that Jesus does not entrust himself to just anyone. Okay, but he does entrust himself to the faithful of Revelation 17, 14. The number one in biblical numerology indicates unity, while the eye depicts spiritual faculties that mirror man's inner being okay the bride wears a chain an ornament as we've seen from verse four the ornament upon her neck is the armory and the weaponry that she uses that's not carnal it's divinely powerful provided by god and without human instrumentation that's definition everything is a definition it just this whole thing goes from word to definition to word to definition we see that the bride's spiritual faculties and that which adorns her neck and gives her strength are, by his own admission, in unity with himself. The bridegroom entrusts himself to the bride because his bride's spiritual condition mirrors his own. Not only, um, not, not because he has imposed this upon her, but because she has made herself thus. The bride has made herself ready. He finds in his bride unity of spirit and in battle finds that they draw weaponry from the same arsenal and strength from the same source. She is of like kind. She's suitable. If we're not doing this as believers, then Christ cannot trust and cannot re repose in us, but he can rest and repose in his bride. The royal priestly qualifications we see fulfilled here, no blemished eye. Why? Because her eye is single. You have um, 
you know, you, you have um, ravished my heart with one of thine eyes. So her eye is single. She does not operate in syncretism. She doesn't try to accomplish a spiritual work through the power of the flesh. She doesn't battle people, the powers and principalities working through man to accomplish God's business. Her single eye can discern the true enemy, allowing her to battle well and enlarge the territory of her king. Because she is not double-visioned, she doesn't operate in both carnal and spiritual manner. The carnality is completely gone. It's single, spiritually operating in the supernatural alone. This is a distinguishing factor of the bride. It's what makes her distinct. No blind man shall approach. That's a, that's a, a priestly obligation. No blind man shall approach. The unity of eye that the bride has with the bridegroom allows spiritual perception and revelation knowledge. She's able to see the spiritual realities as she battles with supernatural weaponry. That's why she qualifies to step into the oracle as a royal priest. She's able to see spiritual realities, and she battles with supernatural weaponry. You cannot defeat a supernatural foe if you don't have supernatural weaponry. And if you're not going to use supernatural weaponry, you can just assume from the get-go you're going down. You're not going to win. The help meets suitable qualifications fulfilled. The chain, which we've already seen, is the ornament that adorns the neck. The neck is her symbol of strength. It is her use of spiritual weaponry. It is the spirit of God that allows her to move in and through her, that she allows to move in and through her, so that she is able to offer divine aid to her husband. There she qualifies for being a helper, divine aid. She is of like kind as the bridegroom, as he himself bears witness that she is one with him and mirrors him. That's why she is numbered among the faithful of Revelation 17, for her beloved's heart can rest in her. If we go to verse 14, we'll just do two more, and we'll wrap this up. But verse 14 says, Nard and Saffron, Calamus and Cinnamon. Uh, let's start with verse 13. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits. We talked about the choice, right? So um, choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, along with all the finest spices. Well, your shoots, what's a shoot? Here's your definition. Shoots are that which break forth as bringing newness of life and bearing fruit. The word orchard stems from the root word paradise, pointing to the correlation with Eden or the oracle of God. So we, we, that's why we talked about the garden of God, the oracle of God, the throne of God. That oracle was in the garden of God or paradise. That that is that that is its um, its value. That that's that is what makes it um, you know preeminent. It wasn't because it was the home of Adam and Eve. It was because it was the oracle of God, the place of greatest intimacy. Okay, so we see here that she is the choice. Choice depicts the finest, the best, the foremost of its class or kind. Fruits point to that which is naturally produced. These are your definitions, that which is naturally produced. Choice, the finest, the best. In the listing of the finest spices, 
That's what those spices are. Those are considered the finest of all spices. The bridegroom conveys that what his bride offers is the best. What she offers is the uniquely finest, and her offerings exude a fragrant aroma, a savor. In such a manner, he describes the many delights to be found in his bride. The quality of what she presents is fit for service to her God. That's why she could enter the oracle in the position of bride. The bride brings forth life. What is naturally produced out of her life is a reflection of the oracle of God reproduced in her life. That, that, is, that is what the Lord shows me over and over again. Our fruit is not which we, by sheer dint of will, in our ministry, push out of ourselves to serve God. The fruit we bear as believers, when we're operating as a bride, our fruit will bring forth life. That which is naturally produced out of our lives is a reflection of the oracle of God reproduced in our life. It is the fruit born from intimacy with our beloved. The fragrant aroma that ascends from the fruit the, the bride produces is the uniquely finest and foremost in quality, bringing delight to her bridegroom. The quality of what she renders to her God is choice because she herself is the choice among the chosen, even as a tree bears fruit after its own kind. The royal priestly qualification <clears throat> that we see fulfilled here the positioning of the bride in the orchard bears witness to the truth that she has met the high priest qualifications as can be found in the oracle of God. To help meet suitable qualifications fulfilled, she walks in obedience to tend the garden. To dress it means to serve or work as an act of obedience or worship to God. This is a physical picture of the spiritual truth that she keeps the oracle of God. All right. We talked about keeps, to watch over, to attend, to guard carefully. Okay, what is she guarding, tend, and keeping? The word of God. The word of God. Okay, the law of truth is in her mouth, and her lips preserve knowledge. She shows no partiality to the word. She neither corrupts nor perverts what God has entrusted to her care. And by reason of this, she has caused none to stumble and did turn many from iniquity. Malachi, the messenger of Malachi, chapter 2, 5 through 7. This is how she keeps her garden enclosed, locked, and sealed. All right. So we see finally, let's just go to verse 15 and we'll wrap this up. You are a spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. Again, here we see, likened to the word chosen, as we unpack this, spring, well, and stream are all words that depict that the source as being divine. This is your definition. When you go in and you look at your definitions, they will say that these words, here's your quote, these words depict the source as being divine, as being from the Lord. This is what's being pictured here. The bride here is acknowledged as being a divine blessing, sovereignly bestowed by God himself to the bridegroom. Even as pictured in the Jewish tradition, the father chooses the bride for his son. You don't choose yourself to be the bride. No one chooses himself to be the bride. The father will choose the bride for his son. Here we see that the bride is chosen for the bridegroom, a gift from his father. 
And as would any father, God will choose only the best for his son. The bride will merit this. Having walked in the fullness of the royal priestly requirements, she has shown herself to be the choice, the uniquely finest, the best of its class or kind. So I just want to conclude with these three thoughts. One, um, <clears throat> with regards to this whole royal priesthood section, we see that as the believer operates in the fullness of all God called him to be, he fulfills both the kingly service and priestly ministry to God, kingly, royal, priestly. Okay? It's what this whole royal priesthood is all about. Are we operating as kings and priests? This, you know, shoots us back to part one. Prepare to overcome, like preparing the saints. Even as we are operating in the spiritual warfare, that's a kingly requirement that is being fulfilled. Okay? So, as we operate in the fullness of this, we are operating in both the kingly service and priestly minister. This is appropriate because as having entered beyond the veil, he, believer, with high priestly ranking, comes into the oracle of God, God's very throne room. This is the seat of God's governance where divine decrees are issued. Okay, one can only serve God as king, instituting his commands to the power of the spirit, can serve him as priest and only one who ministers to God as his priest that is hearing from the Oracle can serve him as King. All right. So basically that's what that whole world priesthood is picturing. All right. So we can only serve God as King when we're ministering to him as a priest and we can only minister to him as a priest when we're serving him as a King. This Royal priestly function is a spiritual endeavor it's born out of the oracle. These are the ones who speak what they hear the Father saying. And these are the ones doing what they see the Father doing. These are those trustworthy to be messengers of the Lord. And what we see in Song of Solomon chapter 4 is a picture of the bride. It is God's desire that all of his people ascribe to this coveted place in the kingdom. That's what all of these scriptures and this beckoning is all about. But it is only by virtue of their obedience and unwavering faithfulness and owing to the sanctity of their life due to the absence of profanity that these believers will qualify to be of like kind as the bridegroom and fulfill the requirements set forth by God to be the bride, the wife of the lamb. Indeed, the purity in the life of the believer is a distinguishing factor that will dictate her place and her position in the kingdom because it is her purity that will allow or disallow her ability to be in close proximity and in greatest intimacy to her king. The distinction is foundational. Purity is what makes the distinction. And it is only the absence of the flesh that will allow for the purity. Any flesh at all immediately profanes. That's what Christ is picturing on the cross. No flesh can be left. It's got to be gone. And until we begin to understand the magnitude 
of purity in God's eyes, we will not begin to clean out our vessel with the same degree of, you know, of, um, of importance. If we continue to walk through our lives and, you know, Christ paid it all and Christ forgives my sin and Christ does this and Christ does that and Christ, you know, and we're resting and trusting in Christ, that's fine. But if our vessels are filled and if they're with, with the enemy and if they're filthy, God cannot take into battle with him those who are housing the enemy in their vessel or those who are weakened. He's not going to take into battle of Revelation 17 those with broken hands, those with lame feet, those who are hunchbacked and bent over. This would not be a victorious army going into battle. And that's the point to all this. There's qualifications that must be met, but we qualify ourselves in the one sense that we endeavor to clean our vessels, and God qualifies us in the other sense, and it's only through him and in him that we can do this. So that's, you know, that's all that I have to say with regards to, um, you know, all of this. As we, as we move forward, we're going to see, Adam, that as we finish out, you know, the book on the Malachi, and then again with the Zadok priesthood, all it's going to do is continue to confirm that there are distinctions in the kingdom. And God is recognizing this. God is seeing that his people come with varying degrees of devotion to him and varying degrees of purity before him. And the purity that we have in our hearts is all born out of our love for him. The more we love him, the purer we become because we love him. And he sees this. And so... This is what makes the distinction, and we're going to see it in the book of Malachi, the distinction between the general assembly, the sons of Levi, you know, filthy to varying degrees, but then you've got the messenger of the Lord, which we're going to see when you look at his description and his definitions and what defines his character, it matches exactly with that of the bride. It matches exactly with the royal priesthood. Then we go into the Zadok priesthood again. What you're going to see is every scripture with their definitions are going to reveal that God has distinctions. So this is just the, the foundation that's going to allow us to recognize what's being communicated as we finish the book. No, that's... that's oh, go ahead. I'm done. Okay. Yeah, no. Really, really good stuff. Honestly, I, I, can't, uh, I can't help but think just the fact that, you know, we're called to be pure, to walk in maturity. Walking in maturity is blameless before the eyes of God. Now, the only way we're able to do that is because we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, by because we've been born again into now a spiritual reality. And, I mean, even getting to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. But look at that, to be a holy priesthood. You know, that's what you're getting built up to be a holy. But what if you decide not to? What if your decision is that you're going to fall back in love with the world? Or you're like the Israelites where you just got freed from Egypt and you want to go back, you know? And, and it's some of those things that we have to really take in consideration that we don't want any Egypt in us. 
We don't want that life anymore. That person died. And just like Moses parting the sea, that represents the baptism that we had to walk through. And it's so important that we understand that, that there is a responsibility that we have. We are housing the presence of the Lord. We need to walk in that bride status with the mindset of just staying in the oracle, staying in the holy place, working on this intimacy with the Lord, getting to know our bridegroom. I mean, how many people, if Jesus came down to earth, would we actually know that it's him? The disciples really didn't know. Definitely the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, didn't have a clue. They pictured him as something else. They searched the scriptures. They searched the scriptures for God. And yet God was right there in front of their face and they did not see him. They did not know him because they weren't walking spiritually. Well, if we as Christians are not walking spiritually, we are falling in error as the Pharisees have done. We need to be preparing ourselves, emptying ourselves of ourselves so that we can be filled with him. We need to see scripture through spiritual eyes. It's not a method. A lot of people love methods. They love methods. They love to say, okay, you lay hands, you pray once, and it's done. All right? Or, you, when you, if you're praying for somebody's eyes, you want to put your thumb on the eyes like this, and then you pray, and then there you go. The problem is, is you've taken the Holy Spirit out. Jesus was in step with the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He only saw what the Father was seeing. He only did what the Father, what he saw the Father doing, and he only spoke what the Holy Spirit was saying, and he emptied himself. We need to do the same because it's not a method. You could get caught up in a method. And just like Debbie said, be gone, I never knew you. You, you put it, your faith in a method instead of in the Holy Spirit. You lose relationship. You fall out of that, that part. And now you're walking in straight disobedience. Because it comes down to being spiritually mature, not infants in faith. You cannot be double-minded and walk this, this road of life. He says you don't want to be double-minded. You don't want to have your eyes fixated on the world and then fixated on the spirit and the spiritual things and God. You can't do that. It's about relationship. It's about being in the Holy of Holies and the Oracle, being and pursuing bride-ship. And I know that there was once a guy, and it took him 30 minutes to just explain this. It was so funny because he talked about their spiritual senses. Remember, an infant is a little baby. Now, little babies have to develop their five senses. Well, you also have things called spiritual senses. And I remember I listened for 30 minutes, and finally the guy's like, okay, you want to hear the spiritual senses? Because I was waiting for this for so long. And I'll just tell you, it's seeing. And you'd be like, seeing? Yeah, seeing in the spirit. You have to develop your spiritual eyes. And someone's like, well, I don't know if that's true. Okay, look in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's hand. That's the sight. You're able to see it. Just like being born of the Spirit, you're able to see the kingdom. And then you have hearing. John chapter 12, verse 29. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. This is when God speaks specifically about Jesus on their behalf. And some just heard thunder. They didn't have their spiritual senses trained. Others, though, an angel. They thought, maybe it's an angel. At least they started thinking spiritually in that aspect. But they still didn't know that that was literally God's voice coming forth. Next, you have smell. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. We are the aroma. There is an aroma of Christ, a fragrance of Christ. And lastly, touch. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, now remember, this is John, he sees Jesus. I fell. So he sees, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. So he felt the embrace of Jesus and saying, then he heard, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now just think about that for just a moment. If you are not walking in this, if you are not renewing your mind to the will of God, you should know the will. And you want to have that intimacy. I want to smell my beloved, my bridegroom. I want to have and understand and discern his touch, hear his voice, and I want to see him. That's the desire of the bride. Intimacy, intimacy, intimacy. A lot of people get stuck on the gifts. A lot of people get stuck on the supernatural. A lot of people get stuck on all this other stuff. Get stuck in him. Be consumed by him. He needs to be your only, to be your everything. I know I get caught up in a lot of people asking me about, you know, spiritual warfare and things like that. Honestly, my best answer is get alone with him. If there's not a method, it's just him. And believing him and he listening from him, it takes time to develop it these spiritual senses. But when you're finally starting to walk by the Spirit, now, now you're walking in freedom. So with that being said, um, thank you so much, Debbie. And I'm really looking forward to uh, the next chapter. And the next chapter is going to be on, it was the book of Malachi, correct? Yes, and I think we might just do the entire section um so the next like three or four chapters in one. We're just gonna do the book of Malachi in one in one podcast. Oh, okay, great. That's fantastic. And honestly, we just got done completing uh part two or section two of Prepare to Overcome. And now we're moving on to section three, which is the book of Malachi. Uh I know I'm excited to hear about it. And thank you so much, Debbie, for joining us this morning and have yourself a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. You too, Adam.